Okay, uh, let's go to God in prayer now, so that we can uh, really ask God to uh, help us to understand His Word. Because I think that today's passage particularly, uh, as uh, we look at Paul's uh, experience in uh, one Corinthian, uh, to the Corinthian church, really, we really need God's help to understand what he's saying. So let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, truly we pray that uh, as the author of uh, your word, the Bible, you will guide us today in terms of understanding what it means, but all the more importantly, through the Holy Spirit, to help us to obey it, uh, so that we may live lives pleasing before you, and that truly when Jesus comes once again, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. We pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, uh, a relative of mine told me this story, so I can't verify whether it's true, but I presume it is, because uh, there's no reason why she would lie to me, uh, about uh, a friend of hers, who was a follower of some uh, spiritual guru. Now, if you hear this story, you might think it was a very unbelievable story, so that's why you might say that maybe it's not true, but, but I, I think it is true. So anyway, she told me that her friend used to follow the spiritual guru. And uh, this spiritual guru told her friend that she shouldn't eat uh, seafood. No seafood for her. Seafood is bad because of some uh, reason about the, the life force in the, in the seafood. So no crab, no Hokkien mee, no chili crab. All those things she gave up. And this spiritual guru also told her friend, my relative's friend, that you must give up uh, your money for, uh, to, you know, it's better to be poor, so she should give all her money and give it away. Anyway, so one day, according to my relative, her friend saw this spiritual guru at a five-star restaurant eating crab. <laughs> so she rushed in and said, what are you doing? You told us that we shouldn't eat any seafood. So then the spiritual guru uh, told my relative's friends, oh, it's different because I have the power to cast out the life force from the seafood before I eat it. So that's why it's okay for me to eat it. Then she said, what are you doing in this five-star hotel? Because in, uh, this uh, five-star hotel and this restaurant, because you said that, you know, uh, it's not good to be rich, that we, we should all live a very humble and poor life. And the spiritual guru told my relative's friend, oh, it's okay because when I die, I'll give all my money away. To which, of course, my uh, relative's friend was not very impressed. And she decided never ever again to go to any of the spiritual guru's talks or to listen to him or to follow him at all. And I think that's what today's passage in 2 Corinthians uh, is about. Uh, that's about the basis of where Paul is coming from. Uh, because the question that is really forming the background to today's passage is, is, is who do you trust, right? Whom should you trust? Whom should you follow? Which religious leader should be worthy of uh, you listening to? And the background to 2 Corinthians was that Paul had actually established a church in Corinth. He had uh, set up the church. He spent one and a half years there. He had actually brought the people there to a relationship with Jesus Christ and they had become Christians because of him. But then after one and a half years, Paul had left the church in Corinth and uh, other people had come in, or maybe they were already there, the young Christians, and they began poisoning the minds of the Corinthian Christians against Paul. They were planting seeds of doubt about Paul in the minds of the Corinthian Christians. And uh, indirectly, they were actually saying, as they were putting Paul down, they were raising themselves up. They were saying, don't follow Paul, but follow us. And uh, that was what it was coming down to. Could the people actually really trust Paul? All right, would, they, would they be following Paul, in spite of all these things that these teachers in uh, Corinth were saying? And... These uh, troublemakers, let's call them troublemakers in Corinth, were criticizing Paul on two points. The first point was that they were criticizing his, his writing, his letters. Okay, If you look at the passage as we will go through, 
The first thing that they criticize him is about his letters, his writings. The second thing that they criticize Paul about is, is his words, his promises, uh, his speaking, his, uh, his talking. So Paul begins this way in verse 12. Now this is our boast. Uh, our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. Now, when we think of the word boast, as you look here in verse 12, this is our boast, you might think, well, boasting is a very negative thing, right? When we think of boasting, we think of someone with a very loud mouth, he's showing off, always bragging about themselves. But here when Paul says this is our boast, he's not using it in a a negative way, but he's using it in a positive way. Because what's happening is the people in Corinth were saying that Paul was unreliable, the things that he he wrote were uh, not really dependable, but then Paul says it's actually the opposite. He doesn't see it as a weakness, but it is rather his boast. So boasting here is a good way, is a positive thing, it's something that he takes pride in. Uh, If you want to translate it another way, another way of actually saying it is, this is my confidence, this is my assurance, this is my, my positive belief. And what is his positive belief? Well, his positive belief is that rather than having any sense of doubt over his credibility or his uh, sincerity, he says that my conscience, or our conscience, that means himself with the other pastoral leaders, testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. Now, I want to spend a bit of time here talking about the word conscience. Now, the word conscience here literally means something that, uh, if, uh, that is given to every human being by God. It's not, a, it's, not, it's not God's law, it's not God's holy standard. It's something that's given to every person, Christian or not. And in the Bible, the, the Bible actually says the conscience is an imperfect instrument. That our consciences can be wrong. There are times where our consciences will deceive us. It's not perfect, the human conscience. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, up here, uh, this is what Paul says earlier on in this uh, other letter. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. Right? He recognizes that his conscience can only be so far, uh, so clear, right? That there is still elements which he's not sure about. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the point of time till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and expose the motives of men's heart. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. So what he's saying here is, every person, every one of you sitting here, including me, we have a conscience, but that conscience can be imperfect. We can make mistakes. So, the Japanese soldiers who killed the POWs, uh, the prisoners of war, in Changi, or in Burma, or in China, they will say even today that they did nothing wrong, their conscience is clear. It doesn't mean that their conscience is right, it's because their conscience is hardened. Uh, there are still people in Germany, Nazi soldiers, who will say that killing the Jews was okay before God. Again, their conscience is not right, but they don't recognize it. Now, the conscience is an imperfect instrument, but at the same time, uh, as we are growing as Christians, uh, the, the, the human conscience that God has given us will be shaped more and more by the Holy Spirit so that our conscience is more in tune with what God wants of us. Our conscience will be more in tune with God's righteousness. Again, uh, this is what Paul says, right? And uh, we need to pay very careful attention to this. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, 
he says, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a, a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Uh, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Oh, yep, it's up, up there. Some have rejected these and shipwrecked their faith. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. Deacons likewise are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must hold to the deep truths of the faith of a clear conscience. So, actually the conscience in someone who is not a Christian, who is not refining their conscience or softening their hearts, is an imperfect instrument. But as Christians, the expectation is as we grow in Christ, as our conscience is shaped and informed by God's word, that it is influenced because of the Holy Spirit working in us, uh, it will become more and more in tune with God's will. And as Christians, if we do not have a good conscience, then that is a big problem. So if you're sitting here today right now, and your conscience is troubled because of some action that you have not done or have done, you do not have a clear conscience before God, if you uh, feel troubled deep inside because of your conscience, then that is something to be worried about. Uh, something that, we, that you should take action about. Because God is actually using it to prompt you to move in the right direction. If you ignore it, then actually that is very, very bad news for you. So when Paul doesn't have that problem, he doesn't have a troubled conscience in terms of his dealings with the Corinthian church. He has a clear conscience. And why does he have a clear conscience? Because he says that in his relationships with the world, which is outside there, in verse 12, and especially in our relationships with you, with the Corinthian Christians, with other Christians, he has dealt with them in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. See, look at what it says there very carefully. He doesn't say, I've dealt with you in the holiness and sincerity that come from the world, but from God. Now, last week, you may have read the Straits Times, and there was a survey done to say, what is the highest character trait that Singaporeans value in other people? And what was it? Honesty, right? But the world's best, you know, many people say that they're very honest people, but honesty is a very uh, dynamic uh, variable quality, right? What is honesty? I, I've had this argument with uh, various people, my relatives, uh, including my immediate family. What is honesty, right? Does honesty include white lies? And honesty include exaggerating or moving the truth so that people hear what they want to hear. Right? So, this is not what Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about holiness and sincerity according to the world standard. He's saying he has acted to the world and especially to Corinthian Christians the holiness and sincerity that are from God's standard. And that's why he's got a clear conscience, a good conscience before God that he has done what is right. And therefore, at the end of verse 12, he can say, we have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. Now, if you look at your Bible again, when it says that worldly wisdom, literally the word there is the word flesh, according to the flesh. Right? He's not dealt according to, to, to the flesh, that means the, uh, the old way of doing things, but according to God's grace. Uh, the grace that God has given him, the, 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 the grace which motivates him to work uh, at his ministry. So, he goes on to say in verse 14, You've only understood me in part, 
But if you come to understand me fully, you will boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord. Now, remember the beginning in verse 12, he says that this is our boast. Well, again, this is not a negative boasting, right? But he's saying that, look, right now you don't understand us fully. You only understand us this far, right? Okay, so look up here. You understand us in, in a part. And the rest of it is filled with doubts and suspicions and difficult, you know, and uh, questions. But if you understand us fully, if you really understand us as we truly are, you will not doubt us. You will not mistrust us. But instead, when Jesus comes, you will take pride in us. You will boast about us because we've always loved you and dealt with you honestly. And we, have, we are the ones who have built you up in Christ. Now, as we look at this uh, very early section of what Paul was saying, I, I think it's a real challenge to us. Because uh, Paul is being accused of being uh, dishonest or insincere or not meaning what he really says. And for Paul, he will not sit idly by and allow people to say that about him. Now, this is not just true for apostles or people in ministry, but it is true of people in, in, in Christian life. Now, do you have a clear conscience that when you deal with people in the world, and especially with Christians, do you deal with them with a holiness and a sincerity that are from God? Do you have a good conscience to say that we have not dealt with each other or with other people in the world according to the flesh, the old way of living, but the new way of living according to God's grace? Now, I think that living in this world is so easy to take on board the world's standard of honesty and sincerity and holiness. But for Paul, he says that's not the way that we should operate. We should never operate in a way that uh, is less than God's standard of holiness, honesty and sincerity. So, I just thought of some uh, very quick illustrations. Okay, Maybe it relates to you, maybe it doesn't. Obviously, it relates to me. I feel it relates to me. Like, maybe in your relationships with your friends or family, are you trustworthy, honest? So, like, you know, you're running late and you say, I'll be there in five minutes. But actually, there's no way you ever make it there in five minutes, right? Unless you can teleport or something. But you just say it because, you know, you don't want people to feel that, you know, they're going to be waiting a long time. Uh, you know, what about your vows to your spouse? So, here, I, I got the solemnization of marriage. There's somebody in our church is going to be married soon, so I was looking at it again. You know, when you married your spouse, you said uh, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, to death do us part, according to God's holy ordinance, thereto I give you my promise. So are you true to those words? Uh, are you, did you say them with honesty and sincerity uh, before God? And even in your relationships at work, do you find yourself saying things or promising things which you know in your heart that you'll never be able to keep. But you're saying it either to win that contract or to get that job or to just to placate your, um, uh, your supervisor, somebody who's, who's giving you a hard time. So you say, yeah, 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 I'll do it. But actually in your heart of hearts, you'll know that you'll, you'll never get it done. Because as Christians, we should, we should never do that. You know, that's not living God's way, but living the world's way. Now the problem is that it's very easy for us to take that on board and one of the sad things I, I, I experienced a few, probably about a year ago now, was actually it's a few 
years into him. I, I have a really good friend of mine from university. He was one year above me. And in university, he's a Singaporean guy and we always had a good time. And I hadn't seen him for a very long time. Then I went to my school's, my children's school parent-teacher gathering. And I bumped into him again. I said, wow, isn't it great? You know, I'm, I, saw, I saw him and now he's a very successful businessman. And, and I said, oh, why don't we get together for lunch? And he said, oh, I'm so sorry, I don't have my card. And he wanted you give, you give me your card and I will give you a call and we'll meet up for lunch. So I think my son was in primary one then. So I gave him my card. I never heard from him again. And secondary, secondary one, the same parent teachers, I saw him again. <laughs> right? Hey, hi, how are you, you know? Haven't seen you. I, I never heard from you, right? <laughs> so, right? Hey, let's meet up for lunch. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm going to, this time we'll definitely meet. But I don't have my card with me. What's your number again? Give me your card and I'll definitely call you. We'll meet up for lunch. Okay, I'll give it. My son has graduated now. So, uh, JC1, I still haven't heard from him. We never had lunch, right? Now, that's not really a problem so much because uh, he's not a Christian and that's probably, you know, the way he treats people. But my surprising thing was I spoke to a Christian friend, a Christian friend of mine, and I said, I was complaining to him about this guy, and he said, oh, people do that all the time. I do that too. I say that to my friends, let's meet up for lunch, and I'll get call, call you back, but I never do. I said, but don't you think that's wrong? He said, ah, it's okay. Look. But the sad thing is, uh, this Christian friend of mine, uh, I SMSed him, he said, oh, I'm away on travel. I'll SMS you when I come back tomorrow and we'll meet up. And this was one year ago. Right? So obviously he lives by what he says. Right? Which is, he's following the, the whole, I guess the honesty and the sincerity of the world. When he says, let's meet up, I will call you, he actually doesn't have it in his mind uh, that he's actually going to call you at all. But that's not right because in, in the, you know what Paul is saying is in good conscience we, we have to keep to the standard that God has given us which is holy and sincerity according to God's grace. Now Paul goes on to say, in verse 15, uh, that it's not just his, his words, his writings, uh, that, uh, were, that they were questioning, but his promise, right? And a very particular promise. Verse 15. Because I was confident of this, I planned to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I planned to visit you on my way to Macedonia, and then to come back to you from Macedonia, and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. When I planned this, uh, did I do it lightly? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner, again, in a fleshly way, right? So that in the same breath I say, yes, yes, but no, no. Now, exactly what is happening here, uh, I'll try to explain it to you as best I can. If you look up here on the screen, right? Okay, Paul was going from Judea, which is here, and he was going to do ministry up here in Macedonia. I'm sorry if you can't see it, but this is Judea, where Jerusalem, Israel is. Macedonia is up here. So Corinth is this city here, which is where the church is in Corinth and uh, where the letters of Corinthians are written to. And Paul had promised that as he made the journey from Judea, he would stop off on the way in Corinth to Macedonia. And on the way back from Macedonia, he would stop off here and come back to Judea. Now the problem was that um, uh, as we can reconstruct history, Paul, in the end, didn't actually stop in Corinth. He actually went straight from Judea all the way to Macedonia. And the troublemakers in Corinth were saying, oh, you know, Paul said he was going to come and visit, right? He said he was going to call, meet up for lunch, but he didn't, he didn't stop, right? 
And what did Paul do instead? Well, all Paul did was when he was in Macedonia, he wrote them uh, the letter. He wrote them a letter. Uh, next slide. Okay, no. Okay, I'll, I'll explain the next part later. Okay, go back again. So while he was in Macedonia, he wrote them letters. And uh, the people uh, at uh, Corinth, the troublemakers, were saying, you know, you can't depend on this Paul. Because he said he was going to come, but he didn't come. And all he does is write letters. You know, it's so easy to write letters. Why did he send us his postcard rather than come and visit us himself? Now, Paul will not take this lying down because as we read this section, uh, it doesn't just impact on Paul personally. But as we see and read between the lines, Paul is saying that it impacts on his message, on his gospel. And uh, Paul then goes on in verse 18 to 22 to, to explain that he is not uh, this faithless, uh, fickle sort of person, but he had a good reason uh, later on for, for not coming to visit them. So he starts off on first principles, right? Uh, the, the basic foundation. And the most basic foundation you can start off with is God. And in verse 18 he says, But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes or no, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. So through him the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set a seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit on our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Now you need to have verse 18 and 22 open in front of you because what he's, he's actually say, saying a, a logical argument. He starts off with God and he says, surely God is faithful. And uh, any person that professes to believe in God believes that God is a faithful God. He keeps his promises. And the Old Testament is very clear that God was a promise-keeping God. So, in Numbers chapter 23, the next slide, this is how God is described. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. He, does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I have received the command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot change it. So God, in his character, is faithful. Okay, That's the first part of the equation, the, 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 the foundation of his argument. Then he says, goes on to say, how do we know that God is faithful? Well, we know God is faithful because he has sent Jesus. And in Jesus, all the promises of God become yes. Has always been yes. So in verse 19 he says, right? He said, in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes. In Jesus. Now, what does he really mean by that, that? That in Jesus, all the promises of God are yes. Well, as we understand the Bible, and this is how we understand the Bible, the Old Testament is full of promises which point to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 24, uh, next slide, Jesus explained his death on the cross in this way, right? He said to his disciples as they were walking, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not have the Christ, sorry, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explains to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So that means all the promises of 
the Old Testament, that means Moses, which is believed to be the first five books of the Bible, and then all the prophets, which is the rest, point to Jesus and they find a fulfillment in Jesus. So therefore, all the promises are found in Jesus. Therefore, God's promises are all yes in Jesus. So God made a promise to Abraham that through his children, through his child, God will bless the world. It is yes in Jesus. God made a promise to King David that uh, someone from King David's line will eternally rule. That's yes in Jesus. God promised to forgive sins. They are yes in Jesus. God promised eternal life. And they are yes in Jesus. So he begins the argument by saying, God is faithful, yes. And we can see his faithfulness in Jesus, yes. And therefore, we can say Amen. The Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Through him, through Jesus, the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now, Amen is uh, an ancient Hebrew word. And literally, Amen, whenever you, you pray and say Amen, uh, do you know what you're saying? Amen literally means it is true, it is so. You, you pray a prayer, you say to God, it is so. Right. So we say Amen, we say it is so to God, it is true, because of Jesus, because he's fulfilled all of God's promises. And then, in the last part, verse 21, he's looked at God who is faithful, he's shown his faithfulness through Jesus, and now in verse 21, he looks at himself, and this is where, it's a bit confusing in verse 21, because he keeps saying us and you, us and you. Now, verse 21 is not so much referring to the Corinthian Christians as to Paul and Silas and Timothy and his ministry team. And he's saying that God has anointed us, not being all Christians, God had anointed Paul and his ministry team. He had set his seal of ownership on us, Paul and his ministry team, and has put his spirit on us uh, in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So he's saying God is faithful and he's shown his faithfulness in Jesus and he's also empowered and commissioned Paul to speak on God's behalf. And that's why Paul, in the way that he acts, is faithful as a messenger of God. He reflects God's faithfulness. So that's why Paul's words are not yes and no, but they're actually yes. When he says yes, he means it. He says what he means and he means what he says because he is actually reflecting God's faithfulness who has commissioned him in his life. Now, I think this is a very important principle because it shows for us uh, how Paul understands uh, the role of God's leaders or servants. Right? They, they are to reflect uh, Jesus and God in their life because they are commissioned by God to speak God's words. Now, Paul doesn't say that, oh, you know, you should listen to me because I'm an apostle. He says to them, you should listen to me because my life is consistent with the message that I'm preaching. Now, I think it shows here, uh, again, the question, remember, we asked in the introduction is, whom you can trust? Who can you trust? Well, Paul is saying you can trust him because he is commissioned by God and living a faithful life as God who has called him. Right? Now, I've got this book, I read this book uh, quite a while ago. It's called Success Kills. And in this book, it talks about, uh, I guess, a crisis of trust in America uh, and how more and more people, survey after survey, have shown that people distrust their leaders, political leaders, business leaders, religious leaders, because in their lives, they are not consistent with their message. So you have people who are religious leaders who, uh, who molest children. Right? You have business leaders who, who steal money. You have politicians who break their word. 
But Paul doesn't say that he is like that. See, Paul says as a as a leader, he is actually living out his life through Christ and through God who has called him. He reflects the faithfulness of God. Now it doesn't mean that leaders must be perfect, okay, because I by no means am perfect. Your Bible study leaders, your youth group leaders, your children's church leaders are no means perfect. But there must be an expectation where there is enough consistency which or that resonates with what God's standard is. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, right, next slide. Look at what Paul says to Timothy as he's a leader of the church. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourselves wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. So that means that Timothy, even as a leader, still progresses as a leader. He's not perfect already. He's, he's improving day by day, week by week, year after year. Watch your life and doctrine close, closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. See, as we looked at the introduction, uh, that was obviously a very extreme example of someone who was inconsistent with what he taught and how he lived. But, Paul is saying that in every way, the Christian leader must be consistent with what the person teaches, especially what the Bible is saying and how they live. We must never uh, be like uh, another Christian leader who I spoke to one of the church members about, and uh, this is a, uh, I can't tell you where it is, but somewhere. And this guy was telling me about all these troubling things that the Christian leader in his church was doing. And I was saying, that is wrong, isn't it? Why, how can that person do that? Because it's against what the Bible is saying. And this Christian person said a very shocking thing to me. He said, oh, uh, this person is an exception. He said, you know, he can be excused because he's specially anointed by God. And I said to him, well, I don't believe that uh, being specially anointed by God to do whatever that person is doing excuses you from living a life which is inconsistent with what the Bible is teaching. You know, which, which says that you can be outside of what God says that you must do according to God's word. Paul says it so very clearly. God is faithful. He shows his faithfulness to Jesus. Therefore, Paul as his servant will reflect that in his life. I remember reading an autobiography of Jimmy Carter. And you remember, I'm not sure how strong Jimmy Carter is as a Christian, but he went to this church and his expression was really clear. He said, uh, why he didn't go to this church? He said, Jesus Christ was not there, he said. Right? And obviously Jesus Christ is in heaven, but that was not what he's saying, right? He was saying that the leader there did not reflect Jesus Christ in his life. And uh, as a result, he felt that, uh, that he wouldn't go to that church. And I think that's what Paul is saying, that as Christian leaders, if you lead in any way, right, as you listen to this sermon, you must reflect Jesus Christ in your life. And if you are following someone, don't worry about how impressive they are, how impressive their preaching is, they must reflect God's faithfulness and Jesus Christ in their life. If not, you shouldn't be following them. Now then Paul goes on to finish in verse 23 to the end, and uh, he explains specifically about why he didn't go to Corinth. He said, I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith and that we work, but we work with you for your joy. For it is by faith you stand firm. And so I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I grieve? I wrote as I did so that when I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. 
I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Now, many commentators say this is uh, Paul at his most emotional in the whole Bible. Right? He's full of grief, he's great distress, he's crying. I can imagine maybe the parchment has got tear drops on it or something, right? But he's really, really sad to write to them. And he gives you a reason why, two reasons why, he decided not to go to uh, Corinth. So again, if you look up here on the slide, I think, yep. So here, he went from Judea directly straight to Macedonia, then he wrote to Corinth. Okay, next slide. Now we know that uh, he was meant to visit here, okay, after 1 Corinthians, which we have in the Bible, but he didn't do that. Instead, he sent them what was known as the, the, the grieving letter or the harsh letter, which he refers to here. The letter which caused him much distress, anguish of heart, and many tears. Now, why didn't he want to go to uh, Corinth? Well, first up, if you look at the Bible, in verse 24 he says, We did not want to lord it over your faith, but to work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand. Now, the joy here is not uh, happiness, right? Or laughter. The joy here is talking about the joy in the Lord. It's the idea of your, 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 your Christian walk, your Christian joy. And Paul is saying that he didn't want to come and lord it over them. The word here, lord it over them, is the idea of being like a, a dictator or you know, someone who is a, a bully who wants to domineer over people. In Luke chapter 22, you have a look up here, the next slide, Jesus said, The king of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules, like the one who serves. Now, obviously the political model of that day was not democracy, but dictatorship and kings. And uh, how did they rule? When they rule, when they said jump, you are supposed to say how high, right? Now Paul is not like that. He said, I didn't come to you to lord it over your, your faith, but to work with you. You notice the word here, over you, compared to with you. And he wanted to work for their faith. That was the objective. Now we know that the problem in the Corinthian church, as we saw last week, was maybe sexual immorality, which was referred to in 1 Corinthians. Or maybe the problem was troublemakers in the church in Corinth. But Paul said he wanted to work with them so that they would solve the problem themselves. He didn't want to come to Corinth and and put his foot down and say, okay, you will do this and you will obey me and you will do such and such. No, that was not what he, he felt was best for them. He felt what was best for them was if he would write to them, and they would deal with the problem themselves. He would work together with them so that they would be built up in their faith rather than him uh, putting his foot down. But also, if you look in verse uh, 4, right, uh, he said he wanted to love them. And because of that love, he wanted to spare them the, a grieving visit, a, a painful visit. Now, why was it painful? I guess it would be painful because when Paul came, It would be painful for him because they hadn't taken action yet. And it would be painful for the Corinthian church because he would be forced to discipline them. Uh, I can't think of a better illustration. It's a bit like, let's say, um, you know there's a problem 
And uh, you write ahead and say, look, can you please solve this problem before I come? Because if I come, then I'll have to deal with it. It's, you know, it's painful for you, it's painful for me. So he wants them to deal with the situation before he comes to visit so that everything will be set right. Now, I want you to notice here again the character of Paul's ministry because it, it is a mark of what it means to be a true Christian leader. He doesn't want to lord it over people. He doesn't want to stand over people or put his foot down. He wants to work with them. Right? This word, work with you for your joy is a really important idea that he's working with them so that their faith will mature. And he loves them. Right? People were saying, oh, you know, Paul doesn't want to visit us because he doesn't care. He doesn't love us. But actually Paul says it's the opposite. I didn't visit you because I care for you and love you so much that I didn't want to come and to grieve you and to cause you pain. Now, as Christian leaders, if any of you are leading your cell groups or your Bible study groups or children's church or youth group or any ministry, that is the principle we must have. We must work together with people for their faith and not lord it over them. We must love them and as much as possible not grieve them or cause them pain. I've had various conversations with pastors and I remember talking to this pastor and he's saying how in the church that he led with, he was at before, at the leadership meetings, uh, there will always be people banging the table as punctuation. I want you to do this, right, he would say. And I was thinking that's not really the way to actually uh, lead a church, isn't it? Because it's not about lording it over people, but working with people for the benefit of their faith. We must always be seeking the spiritual maturity of people in everything that we do as leaders and not authority. Now, it's not to say that uh, church leaders have no authority. The Bible says that you must give respect and leaders must have authority in the church, but it's not absolute authority, it's delegated authority. The authority comes from God and what God wants his leaders to do is to mature people in their faith. Now, not long ago, I was speaking to a pastor who was uh, very sad. He'd left his church. And he had been in a church where they had four pastors in the last five years. Think of it as the uh, the church equivalent to Chelsea Football Club, okay, which had nine managers in ten years. It's that sort of thing. And I asked him what happened, right? Because this guy seems to be a really nice guy. He was serving in some committees with me. And he said that what was required to serve in that church was absolute obedience. He said, if you didn't listen to the leaders, you were considered an enemy and they will start marginalizing you. So it's not about whether what you did was, was good for building up other people or doing maturity, you know, mature, helping them mature in Christ. What was important was you must listen exactly to what the leader said. And uh, as a result, the, the, the church was losing members, uh, people were not effective in, in evangelism, and the church was dying. And there are other leaders who, who use the church uh, to increase their personal name or their own glory, or, or the glory of various things they want to do. And again, that's not right, because the motivation here is, as it says there, pay attention to verse 24, right? Not to lord it over your faith, but to work with you for your joy. Because it is by faith you stand. So at heart, at the heart of today's passage, uh, really is about who can you trust? Whom should you follow? Well, the Christian leader is one who has a good conscience before God, that he always speaks the truth and the sincerity and holiness according to God's standard. The person who was not lorded over others but to work with them in faith, uh, to, to work in love for them and not to grieve them. Now, if we're a leader, then a youth leader, Bible study leader, cell leader, whatever, then that is the standard by which 
we must hold ourselves to. Uh, I, I feel in good conscience that all our leaders are like that, and I'm really happy for that, and I'm, I, I really thank God for that. But, if we are following people, then my warning to you is there are many leaders out there in Singapore and other places who do not live as Christian leaders should, who lord it over other people, who do not tell the truth, who are double speakers, right? they, they say the one thing and they mean another thing, and who truly do not have a, a desire to want to see their people grow in faith. And I always warn people, don't follow them because uh, they will not do you any good. Charles Spurgeon, uh, who was a, one of the most famous preachers of this day, was writing a, a book which I've been reading. And he gives an illustration of his time of a person who was a wonderful preacher. And he wrote uh, in the book that I was reading, he said when he was preaching, this wonderful preacher, the people said his preaching was so good that it was said that he should never leave the pulpit. But the problem was when he was out of the pulpit, his living was so bad, so bad that people said he should never get in the pulpit again. Right? And uh, Charles Spurgeon said that this person is a tool of Satan. And I think so too. It's like a leader who does not live according to what the Bible says, according to what he preaches then, is actually uh, not a Christian leader at all. And uh, as we learn from this passage, we should not follow those people. And if we are leaders, we shouldn't live like that. Okay, let's go to God. Dear Father, as we come before you today, truly we want to thank you for your word to us, even though it must have been a very difficult time for both the Corinthian Christians and for your Apostle Paul. But yet, it was a wonderful opportunity uh, to see uh, what is required of your people, what is required of your Christian leaders. We pray for ourselves that we will, as a congregation, uh, truly speak our words with holiness and sincerity according to God's grace, according to your grace not according to worldly wisdom, that we may live lives of a good conscience, a clear conscience before you uh, in this regard. We pray for ourselves, for all our leaders at church, that they may be consistent in their lives and reflect your faithfulness in everything that they do, that they may not lord it over others for their own benefit, but to work with others for their faith and to love them and not grieve them. Dear Father, we pray for the many leaders out there in Singapore, who have fallen into the temptation to use their power for their own personal advancement, for their own glory, for their own authority that they lord it over others. And we pray that they may turn back and just preach your word and live it out faithfully before you. And we pray for ourselves too, that we will continue to continue to be the best leaders that we can be. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.